when I was a child in the palace. What palace was that, love? Crystal? It was the bishop's palace. My father was a bishop. Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only got one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined by Gabe Guarin to talk about Edith Evans's Oscar-nominated performance in the 1967 film The Whisperers. Gabe, good to have you on the podcast. Hi. Um, I'm excited to be on this podcast, as yeah. always. Yeah, uh, I'm gl- glad to have you on. So tell me a little bit about why you picked this performance in particular. What drew you towards this nomination? Well, I knew that I knew of, of its status as sort of like this widely acclaimed performance that had won a ton of precursors. And I know I know a lot of people say that the performer that we're gonna talk about should have won this year. And it just seemed like a very interesting movie. Um, so you hadn't seen it before? No. Neither had I. So we're both coming into this fresh. That's always fun when we're both coming yeah. in with uh, fresh opinions. I always like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about... Uh, oh, first I should go through the rundown of the movie. I always forget to do this. We are talking about The Whisperers from 1967, directed by Brian Forbes, written by Brian Forbes and Robert Nicholson, based on the novel by Robert Nicholson of the same name, starring Edith Evans, Eric Portman, Nanette Newman, Avis Bunnage, Gerald Sim, Ronald Fraser, Robin Bailey, Kenneth Griffith, and Leonard Rossiter. Basically, Edith Evans and a bunch of people you've never heard of. Uh, it uh, premiered in June 1967 at the Berlin International Film Festival before opening on July 31st of that same year in the United States. So that's The Whispers. That's what we're talking about. So uh, uh, what, what are your first thoughts? Like, what are your initial thoughts on Edith Evans in particular about her performance here? Well, um, about Edith Evans, just her as an actress, um, I guess I... The first movie I watched with her in it was Tom Jones. And I know that movie gets, uh, is divisive and gets a lot of hate on Twitter, but I'm one of the people who actually defends it. Hmm. As, I, have oh, you no, seen it? I was going to, if I had time for this, just to like do some more prep on her and specifically her at the Oscars, but I didn't have... Uh, there wasn't a point where I had... like the time to uh, see. and also uh, like based on its reputation i i wasn't the most uh. excited for but i'm i'm glad to hear it has some defenders i will eventually get around to it and yeah. i will have my own opinions at some point in the future yeah and um i also saw in the nun story which she was very good in and so i knew her as um one of the elderly stateswoman um, yeah. who often played these sorts of higher class grand dames. And then I went into this and I was surprised that at first at least she didn't play as totally serious as I assumed that she might have. Yeah, it's a very understated performance. I mean, by design of what this character is. Yeah, yeah. Very... It is understated, but... yeah. It almost felt like she was injecting more 
comedic elements into the performance. Interesting. At least in in the first start, like in the first section of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, there's there's something there. Yeah. Because, you know, the whole the whole like premise of this character is that she's old and impoverished and a little bit senile, paranoid, thinks she hears voices in the walls and like that could easily be the premise of a comedic setup and you're right she does have some moments where like the sort of what would you say like just the situation of that to begin with she does play into the sort of absurdity of it yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought about that but that does make sense yeah yeah and i think it's moments like those like the way she's able to inject some slightly withering acidic wood into her performance that keeps him away from getting too dour, which I think it would have um, had uh, Ada Evans just played it completely straight. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's there's the moment uh, later on in the movie, but when she finds the money that her son has sort of hidden in this spare room, and she finds it and lays it out on the table, and just, like, the laugh that she kind of emits in, in that scene, like, it, yeah. it, it's funny because it's not a normal laugh. Like, it's it's kind of off-putting. But you're right, there is a, a comedic uh, element to that, uh, especially in this first half before it gets into, like, the real sort of darkness of the back half of this movie. But there are... I mean, it's not, like, at any point this is a laugh-out-loud comedy. No, not at all. But, yeah... I think you're right. It does help uh, sort of with the levity of the first half and also juxtaposing that against how dark the ending of it uh, becomes. Yeah. And I rewatched this for a second time, like today, right before, and I was struck by this does feel very much of its time fitting right within the kitchen sink subgenre the british kitchen sink subgenre yeah and a lot of this movie focuses a lot on evans's face and her eyes yeah yeah i wrote down that like so much of the acting in this movie from her is it's like most of the big choices are vocal and like how she delivers lines because like outside of her eyes her face doesn't move all that much like it's a very sort of stoic sort of visage that she has but you do get just like a sadness in her eyes but so much of the movie is like fascinated with her face and how it's just sort of like the particular sort of mold of it in its reaction to all of these moments going on absolutely and even just the way she carries herself, like her body language, like, ex- uh, what? how do I describe it? Like, she expresses a downtroddenness that she's just really convincing at it. And yeah. just fits into this character who just can't seem to get out of this paranoia she's in. Yeah, and I think with the body language, it... Like, I don't know how, like, I I don't know if I have the vocabulary to describe 
how it achieves this, but it definitely presents her. Yeah, but it like presents her as someone that is downtrodden, like you said, but doesn't really fully grasp the the reality of her situation. That like she walks with the, the confidence of someone that thinks they have something to conf- to be confident about, but she doesn't. She has this like tiny little overstuffed apartment where like the ceiling is falling down and the sink is dripping and everyone around her is loud and she doesn't have money to buy new shoes and she doesn't have anyone in her life to support her. Everyone's taking advantage of her, but she isn't sad. She just, she like acts as if she has a better life than she does. And she carries that in her sort of body language in some really interesting ways, I guess Something along those lines. Like, Definitely. I'm sure someone else has put that in much better sort of descriptions, but it's it's what I walked away with, at least. Yeah, I think you put it well. Um, but yeah, but there are certain moments where you understand, like, the state of um, the character she's playing. Like, uh, what, what's, the, what's the name of the character? I missed it. I don't know if she has a name given aside from Mrs. Ross. I don't know if she's ever... Oh, Margaret. Um, oh, Margaret Mrs. Ross. Ross. Yeah. We'll just call her Mrs. Ross. Yeah. But moments like when she is hitting her feet against the library vent. Yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's... She probably doesn't have money to pay for heating in her own apartment. Oh, yeah. No, not at all. And, like, you know how cold it gets up in London. Like, it's... Or, it's not London. It's, I, I think it's... It's described weirdly on the Wikipedia Somewhere page. Somewhere in lower-class England. Yeah. On the Absolutely. Wikipedia page, it says it's a fictional setting that's not named, but it was shot on location in uh, Oldham. But, like, I don't think it's ever explicitly stated that it's a fictional town. I just thought that was interesting that, for whatever reason, the Wikipedia decided to specify that this takes place in a fictional town. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, it's... Either way, it's going to get really cold up there in the winters, and that apartment does not look particularly well insulated. And yeah, you're right, that like that her, her source of heat is to go to the library and put one foot on the heater. It's, yeah. Yeah, she, she is uh, really suffering through it all. Yeah, and... At risk of repeating myself, like, this movie would get, like, too uncomfortably miserable uh, without a performance that could anchor the tone and enable the audience to parse through, like, the emotions that the movie is projecting. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely anchors this in a way that, like, I think if you don't have a or as dynamic, well, not even dynamic, because it's not like she's playing to highs and lows of this character. Like She's mostly staying within a, a particular set of range type, whatever. Range of emotions. Yeah, the, she's staying within a, a very specific range, but like with a performer as just like magnetic in a way that this type of performance can be magnetic. If you don't have someone like Edith Evans maybe this doesn't work 
as well or even at all because you need someone to anchor it like you said yeah and and other moments like the way she tells her uh, tells her uh are the neighbors or apartment um mates i don't know what to call them the like, the upstairs neighbors the people upstairs yeah. yeah upstairs neighbors the way she grabs on uh, the way she gets a broomstick and is basically poking at it and you can hear it crack and yeah you see the, the plaster to be quiet the plaster yeah and it's little moments like those that really add texture and richness to this performance that I feel like people who truly appreciate it will be able to catch on to moments like those. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of little moments like that. There's a, there's a point where uh, she turns on the radio and the radio, the, the man on the radio starts talking about people living in poverty in this country and all this stuff and this whole thing. And she just sort of like nods and goes, those poor old souls and just like, yeah, yeah, you're also living in that exact situation. You have it just as bad as those poor souls. Like, it feels, I mean, obviously she's, you know, living in a sort of fantasy world. She thinks there's voices, the the titular whisperers. She thinks there's, like, voices living in her walls and her drain pipe that are talking to her. And she, like, regales this whole story about the bishop's palace and, like, being this, like, princess or whatever. But she does very much live in sort of a uh, escapism from her own situation to the point that she doesn't really recognize the situation that she is living in. And it just makes it all that more... I mean, I say harrowing about a lot of these movies that I've talked about so far, but it's a really harrowing experience. And she, her sort of cluelessness to her own situation only just elevates that sort of emotion uh, to another degree. And even if she is aware of the um, situation she's in, you get a sense that she's unwilling to ask anyone for help. Yeah, because cause she has money coming. She has her money coming to her, so she doesn't need, like, she asks for the shoes, but, like, she's in control. She She knows what she's getting. Uh, even if she doesn't. Yeah. And what another scene that stood out to me was... Uh, I can't remember the specifics of the scene, but she's describing like an encounter with, an, oh, with an elderly man. And that scene just closes up to the chandelier above them. And then I think it crossfades into her eyes and Edith Evans has a particularly grief-stricken look on her face and yeah that's another really powerful moment and maybe the closest thing she has to an Oscar moment in this movie yeah yeah this isn't necessarily like the most I guess Oscar-y performance if you can put it that way just because it is so I don't need like in yeah subdued internal like there I mean she, I don't think she ever raises her voice above just like a light sort of pleasant tone at any point in the movie and I don't think she ever like she, I yeah no it, it's a very not one note in a like as a pejorative but like she stays on the same sort of level 
throughout the movie to the point that I'm kind of surprised in some ways that she ended up sort of running the gamut of the precursors and getting, it feels like the kind of thing that like would show up one place and you'd be like, oh, that's a very inspired pick on the behalf of whoever decided to vote for her, but that's not where the season was going. But like to see that she won pretty much every everything that she was eligible for except for the Oscar is kind of kind of wild and I love it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just looking at the sort of performances that we know the Academy likes to award, especially around that time, it is surprising that she seemingly came so close to winning the Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what other moments do I have for her? Uh, I mean, there's there's a whole sort of subplot, I guess, if you can call it that, where uh, she thinks that, like, the upstairs couple, which is an interracial couple, she thinks that, like, the man is keeping his, like, white wife hostage or something, and that's just another part of her delusions, and she, like, corners the wife at some point and is like, I can call the police, I can help get you out of there, I can help get you away from that man that's keeping you hostage, and, like, the woman really dresses her down. And, like, it's an interesting moment, and it's a moment that feels like, okay, even though this woman is, you know, clearly paranoid and on just, like, her last legs, she's not entirely sympathetic either. She does have this, like, you know, racist moment, even if it's, quote-unquote, well-meaning, that, like, she thinks she's helping this woman. But, uh, yeah, like, it, it adds another layer to this character of, like, okay, I, I would, I wonder what sort of backstory we have for her. Because the only real backstory we get of her life before the plot is that, like, at some point she married this man who was, like, a little bit younger than her, and then he left her. Uh, but we don't really know much else about, like, what kind of woman she was, because the whole sort of point where she talks about... Because she's she, like goes on this whole tangent where she talks about being like the daughter of some noble or something. Uh, but it feels like that could be just another fantasy on her behalf. We really don't get much personal information about this woman. And I'm kind of interested if that's explored more in the book maybe, or if there's even like if the author had planned of what uh, sort of her backstory would be that led her to this, impoverished life uh but i think it's it's really important that we don't get a lot of that i think it really adds to the sort of like this could be anyone that ends up in this situation yeah um definitely true yeah and of that uh, about that scene of the interracial couple uh i'm sort of a bit mixed on it i understand like the context that you just described, but it sort of feels like um, Brian Forbes or, or Robert Nicholson. I'm not sure if this was in the novel, but it sort of felt like tacked on in a way. Yeah, it, it feels out of place because like it doesn't come to anything other than they're the people that find her after she gets drugged and uh, robbed. But yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't really come to anything. It's probably 
one of my bigger issues with the movie is that sometimes it can just feel sort of aimless and just show us things happening to this lady. Yeah. A day in the life of uh, Mrs. Ross and her just going through the gutter. Yeah, no, it, it does... It is a moment that feels kind of out of place in this, in like the scope of what the movie is saying. Like I get that that's in some way related to the whole poverty aspect of the story. That like it's another sort of situation of the poor old souls where she's talking to the radio, where like she's sort of looking down on this couple that lives above her. Uh, but like, I mean, they're better off than she is. They have a support system they have a child they are you know in a relationship even if they are in the same crappy apartment building that she's living in but like she looks down on them even though she's she's looking down from a, a status below them so like i i get that side of things but yeah the, the the actual confrontation of it feels sort of out of place in some ways yeah and uh, one aspect of the film that stood out to me, sort of, was the way it felt uh, contemporary to its time. The yeah. sort of music it played. Like, it definitely sounded like 1960s rock music from Britain at that time. Yeah. Juxtaposed against John Barry's beautiful score. Yes, and I do want to talk about the score when we get into the rest of the movie. It's a, It's a very good score. It does make uh, Mrs. Ross's placement at the center of the film feel more curious. And it does add a sense of her to her feeling out of place and yet willfully just living her own version of a perfect life. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you have anything else to say about her performance specifically? Like we said, she does sort of act within the same range of, like, yeah. What's the word I'm trying to say? And there's whatever. The same, she's she's on the same mode more or less for the whole movie. Even after she gets drugged and robbed and has, you know, gets sick and almost dies and then has to be taken care of. Like she doesn't fundamentally change the performance after that. So it's not like we have a lot of big moments to talk about for her in this movie. It's just a very good performance that stays at the same level of very good throughout, I feel. I actually love this performance. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. I love that. I love the fact that she doesn't telegraph the emotions and doesn't have to like go through these obvious big swings. Like, it makes sense that she would be sort of numb to everything going on. Yeah. And I think Evans is smart to underplay a lot of what should be big scenes. In that sense, she doesn't have a lot of, like, obvious Oscar moments that would have helped her win the Oscar, but it is still a performance that really only... An actress as skilled as Edith Evans could have given. Yeah. It's a very smart performance. Like, you could see someone else coming from theater and delivering a very big performance. But I think, like, I mean, at this point, she had been acting 
professionally for nearly 60 years. She started acting when she was my age, when she was 22, uh, in the year 1910, and like acted yeah. until she died in 1976. She was an active performer for 66 years. And, you know, at that point, when you've got 57 years of professional acting under your belt, you know what you're doing. You, you know, you have a grasp of how to play a character like this and when to go big in other performances and when not to. And I think she really nails that. Like, the, the experience of decades upon decades of professional acting really shows here because she's not just playing to the to the back row or whatever and you could you could see someone in this role of the like paranoid old woman that thinks she's hearing voices you could see someone doing that way over the top and way just like shrill and loud and just like like what you would expect from when actresses and actors moved from the silent era into talkies and how they were sort of figuring out there. Like you could see someone going for that type of, you have to be shrill and loud when you're playing someone who is paranoid and a little bit senile. Uh, but she's not doing that. And I think by the, by the fact that that's not what she does, it's a, it's a smart performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you don't have, like, I don't have, I didn't write down that many notes for this movie. Cause it's, Neither did I. I wrote, yeah. I wrote down nothing. I, 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 like, I usually write notes on some things. And some, like, some movies, there's a lot to write about that, like, I would go pages and pages of stuff. But this one, I have, like, five or six notes for each section just because I was so, like, drawn into the movie. And, it, like, there aren't any, like we, like we've been saying, there weren't any big moments that were like, okay, this is something I need to write down and note. It was just, I was just taking it in. It's a very, it's a bunch of, was I, I can't remember what I was talking about this about lately, uh, but it's a, it's a movie and a performance that works by building on itself and what it has already established rather than introducing new ideas as it goes along. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and we can sort of use that to transition into talking about all the rest of the movie. You're a married man, aren't you, Mr. Ross? Uh, in a manner of speaking. Put it this way, I could well be. I haven't seen the lady wife for many years. She might be dead, for all I know. She's not dead, Mr. Ross. Isn't she? No, she's been very ill, but she's getting better. You sure it's my wife you've got? Oh, yes, we're sure. Margaret Ross, nay Seaton, one son named Charles. Charlie, yeah, that's right. What's happened to him? Oh, I'm sorry to say my information is he's in prison. So I do want to, like, my first note that I wrote down, because it's the first thing you get in this movie, is the John Barry score. It's, it's beautiful. Just those opening notes over the opening credits. It's, it's really a wonderful score. Yeah, it is. And I like that it doesn't overpower the movie. And... It almost fits into the, like the wistfulness that Mrs. Ross desperately wants you escape into. Yeah, and the score is just so melodic and mesmerizing. It is, and it's a little bit like, like at the it, same time, unnerving and eerie. Yeah, I was about to say it. Like, it definitely sets you up for this as not being 
sort of a, you know, light movie. It sets the tone without immediately coming across as like, oh, this is dark and brooding music. Ooh, spooky, whatever. It like, it, it toys with both of those. It toys with like the darkness and the lightness that we get in this sort of character. Uh, it is interesting. I, I, we're not going to talk about the Oscars just yet, but it's interesting that this movie for John Barry comes right in between winning two Oscars the year before for score and song for Born Free and winning an Oscar the next year for The Lion in Winter. Yes. Right in the middle of that. And he doesn't get, I mean, obviously he doesn't get the nomination because we're talking about the movie, but uh, that it's bookended by three Oscars for John Barry. Uh, I thought that yeah. Um, I assume he was really prolific during this time in his career. Yeah, he was doing all the Bond music. Like, this yeah. is him off of, like, however many Bond movies had happened by then. He had done pretty much all of them. Yeah, this is, like, peak John Barry. Yeah. And then um, you mentioned that this was written for the screen and directed by Brian Forbes. Uh, he seems... Like, he's a director that I've been kind of interested in. I saw... The All-Shaped Room, which was another one of his um, kitchen sink dramas. I didn't think it was that good and didn't really see why people were so unblown over by Leslie Crowe's performance. But I can see this is basically like the Whispers basically sees him using that template and improving on it. Yeah, he's... Like, um interestingly so i haven't checked this on like the early years of uh the movies i get to talk about i haven't looked into all of those but at least from the like 1960 onward he's the most prolific director on my list because he has three movies that i will eventually be talking about he has this the whispers the l-shaped room and seance on a wet afternoon are all lone acting nominees uh, and I, I can't, like, at least off the top of my head, I can't think of any other directors that I know of that I get to talk about three times. So he's got that going for him. Yeah, he seemed like he seemed to be very good with directing actors. Yeah, and getting just those unique emotions out of them. Out of them. Yeah, and like the direction here, it's a very like it's a very subtle movie it's a very small sort of small scale but the direction is really it's really striking it's of a sort of Almost like the bygone era yeah yeah and um we were talking a couple weeks ago when i did my long day's journey into night episode we got on a sort of tangent about frank perry uh as another sort of like a director of this era that hasn't really stood the test of time in terms of being a name people know but, like, he did stuff like The Swimmer, which feels like a very similar sort of unnerving drama. And just to be able to take something as small and simple as this and get under your skin and be whatever, like, I don't know how to describe the sort of mood that this movie gets at. Because it's a very specific, very intentional I don't know. I'm at a loss for words. But, like, yeah, that comes through in the direction. It's a very well-directed 
small it's well directed for the smallness of the scale that it's supposed to be that was kind of a jumbled mess of what i was saying but it's yeah this is the kind of movie that you might see in this era getting a director nomination out of nowhere just for being able to capture this performance being able to capture this particular mood uh yeah i I think he does a really good job here and another thing I want to take note of was the cinematography because it's in black and white. Yes. And this is like the first year where the Academy combined the cinematography category into two categories, into a single category. Yeah. And it was a time where like the um, color was taking over where black and black and white was slowly, slowly fading away. Um, and it would eventually become any film that is shot in black and white gets an Academy Award nomination. Yeah, like it nowadays. went full circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder, though, like, what... Uh, if if this was a year where, where they had kept the color and black and white categories, I mean, this movie pretty often um, would have gotten yeah. a cinematography nomination. It looks beautiful. And then, and, yeah. But like, and Cold Blood... In Cold Blood, yeah, okay. And then Ulysses was just a James Joyce adaptation. I don't think I knew that was in black and white, but yeah, that makes sense. Ah, uh, what else? What uh, two others? I'm trying to look through I don't this know year. I'll be looking up quickly. Yeah, I'm like I'm just looking through a list of movies from this year and movies that got Oscar. I nomination. feel like I've seen. I'm sure there are, but I'm only like. I mean, it makes sense based on the sort of slate of movies why they would combine the two. Uh, or I mean, also in costumes and uh, art direction. Yeah. But it makes sense because so many of these movies are in color that it makes sense why they would just get rid of uh, separating them out anymore because of how many movies were going into that. But now I'm like... Yeah, how many other eligible movies were even in black and white? Well, The War is Over was nominated for original screenplay and was shot in black and white. Okay, that's four. Would it have just been those four in cinematography, art direction, and costumes? I mean, I don't necessarily know if the costumes in The Whisperers are that notable, but if they were really... Um, Who knows? I mean, they, they combined into two for a reason. We'll just yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think the cinematography here is very good without gorgeous. being, without like knocking you over the head with like, oh, here's all these like bright whites and dark Obvious and shots. Yeah. Like obvious shots to signal the emotions you're supposed to feel. Yeah, it's not that. It's like a lot of close-ups on Edith Evans's face and a lot of like shots of this sort of desolate town and the neighborhood. Almost, noir- almost noirish. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like, yeah, there's a lot of sort of noir influence on this. I hadn't thought about that, but that, yeah, that definitely checks out. And like, there is the sort of crime undercurrent. I mean, it's not really, I mean, there is some of it in the back half, but like her son has, we we find out, robbed some bank, I think, to get this money that he stashes in her apartment. And like, when her husband gets sort of enlisted by whoever to go back and take care of her, and he becomes a driver and like witnesses. I was kind of unclear of what's even going on in the last half. Cause it kind of becomes his movie for the last like 30, 40 minutes, which I wasn't expecting. Um, but he like witnesses some 
something or other and then runs away again. It was, it was kind of hard to follow that whole plot. But yeah, there is, a, even, if there is, even if there isn't, even if you get rid of those crime elements, it does still sort of fit the noir aesthetic and the sort of sensibilities of that genre without really positioning itself as an actual noir. Um, what else? Yeah, definitely. I think the production design, just the look of um, Mrs. Ross's overstuffed small apartment yes. and the streets of this um, this lower class small town. Yeah, yeah. It like it's very sort of brutal in its realism. It's very yeah. It really it, you feel like you're in that room. You feel or in that apartment. You feel how cramped it is and how drafty and cold it is and it's loud and it probably smells because it's dirty and it's cold yeah you you feel that when you're watching it yeah and you feel that like just by seeing like i've been in that apartment i've been in houses that look like that and are that just like visceral and like oh i i don't want to be in this house right now I don't want to be impolite and just tell this person your house looks like shit, but I've been in houses like that that give me that exact vibe and they don't make it look like, oh, we we did all this production design to make it look like this. It, it feels real. It feels very lived in. I mean, obviously very lived in that like she's living yeah. in this house alone. It, it feels very... It doesn't feel too fussed over. Yes. And yet there are like it shows a lot of smart production choices and good usage of locations. Like, one thing I really liked about the L-shaped room was the look of the L-shaped room. Yeah. Uh, you got a sense of, like, the high-life people just partying up in there. And that was one of the times I felt the emptiness of the main character. Yeah. And, like... She has the whole spare room that has just been dedicated to stacks of newspapers that she's read. And like when you like they they allude to that spare room a couple times leading up to it and like she says, "Oh, it's not made up. Oh, it's whatever. It's it's being used." And then finally when the like healthcare worker comes to drop off her shoes and asks about that room and she opens it and you see just stacks of newspapers that like fill the entire frame it's kind of wild and like that alone is really it's really smart uh production design because it tells you about this character it tells you that she's been doing this for so long that she has an entire room that is just full of daily newspapers like this is how far gone this character is this is what she does with her life now she just reads the newspaper and tucks it away in her like newspaper room basically it it tells you so much about her and her mental state in just one design choice yeah definitely um i do also uh just another sort of production moment i think the sound in this movie is really really well utilized and like i would have liked to have seen it more because we don't get we get a few moments in the beginning and then at the very end where we have her like honing in on the drip of the faucet and like the scuffling about upstairs and stuff and 
that's sort of what she interprets to be these whispers that she thinks she hears. But I, I would have liked to see a few more moments where we get really in depth with it. And I think if it, if it had leaned into that a bit more, this might be like a sound nominee somewhere because of how much the movie becomes about the sound design. But like even in the, the few moments that we do get of it, I think it's really well utilized. Yeah, I agree about that. Um, we do get a sense of like sparse emptiness, which gives us uh, an opportunity to focus on things we might not have um, paid attention to or noticed. Exactly. Again, I I can't remember what other movie I was talking... I guess with sort of like Long Day's Journey Into Night uh, and some other movies I've talked about lately, there's not really all that much of a plot to this movie, so there aren't a lot of plot moments to talk about. Like, she's old and poor and lives in this apartment, and she thinks she gets some money because her criminal son hides it away in her apartment. And then she goes out and brags about it to a stranger who, like, with the help of her children and husband or whatever, drug her or get her really drunk, steal her money, and then toss her out in the street. She gets sick. They bring her husband out of wherever he's been. And he stays around for a while and then leaves, and that's it. Like, there's not... Even then, like, I'm... That's kind of every plot beat that there is to this movie. There's not a whole lot going on. So it's not like we have a whole lot to talk about in terms of the plot and in terms of the rest of the cast. Like, the actor that plays her husband, he's pretty good when he shows up. I, I think he, he does a pretty good job. But, like, there aren't any, there isn't really anyone else in this movie that I have any real sort of uh, familiarity with. I mean, the husband is it's Eric Portman, who it looks like worked a lot with uh, Powell and Pressburger in the forties. Uh, but I don't, I don't recognize if I've seen any of these things that he's in or have any real familiarity with him as an actor. I did recognize him from uh, Canterbury Tale, which I really liked. So I understand the praise for him. I think he's good. But it's mainly a showcase for Edith Evans. Yeah. And I kind of found it to be less interesting when it focused on other characters. Yeah, the whole sort of last act where it shifts the focus almost entirely to the husband, whose name I I don't remember. Does he get a name? Let's just call Uh, him Mr. Ross. Apparently he's Archie. I don't know if I would have... Let's just call him Mr. Ross. Yeah, but when the sort of focus of the last act shifts to Mr. Ross and his sort of having to take care of Edith Evans and becoming a driver kind of by happenstance and his getting a job. Like, I I, I didn't completely lose interest. It's, it's still interesting, but it's not, at that point, the movie that I'd kind of signed on for and been paying attention to. It kind of loses the plot for a bit uh, and meanders with that storyline. Uh, but, yeah, like... The interesting parts of this movie are the Edith Evans parts, uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really have all that much. I mean, again, Uh, yeah, again, as with a lot of movies that I cover for this podcast, the reason that they don't get these other Oscar nominations is because it's not necessarily, in some cases, the most noteworthy 
design and production of things. Like even if the score and the cinematography here are very good, it's not like we're going to be going into a whole conversation about visual effects or song or whatever. Like there's reasons this movie only gets the one Oscar nomination because the most noteworthy part is the performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything else. Do we want to move on? Do we want to talk about the Oscars now? Sure. Those nominated for Best Actress are Catherine Hepburn in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Anne Bancroft in The Graduate, Dame Edith Evans in The Whisperers, Faye Dunaway in Bonnie and Clyde, and Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. Okay, I'm very excited to get into this because this is one of the rare times that I get to talk about someone who like won a lot of precursors and didn't end up winning the Oscar because the two times so far uh, that I have talked about someone that won a bunch of precursors. It's when I've talked about someone that went on to win the Oscar when I talked about Christopher Plummer for beginners and then Charlize Theron for monster. But other than them, like I've had a few like spare Golden Globes or someone who got cited at Cannes or National Board of Review. But Edith Evans wins the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama, the BAFTA for Best British Actress. She wins Best Actress at Berlin at the National Board of Review and New York Film Critics and is nominated at the National Society of Film Critics. So she, like, swept, more or less. It's kind of wild, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, there's some very interesting... Stuff it's interesting. In here. And I like the fact that she won so many awards. Yeah. Uh, going through with just some of the other sort of stuff we have here. Uh, the Golden Globe, she wins against uh, Ka- the eventual Oscar winner in Catherine Hepburn for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Audrey Hepburn for uh, Wait Until Wait Dark. Until Dark. Yeah, because she, she has two movies this year, but the other one is... That, a, um, yeah. uh, two for the Road. Is two for the Road. Yeah, and then uh, Faye Dunaway for Bonnie and Clyde, who's also Oscar nominated. And then the fifth uh, nominee at the Globes is Anne Haywood for The Fox, which ends up beating The Whisperers for the Golden Globe for Best English Language Foreign Film, which is basically just... Because it was a Canadian production. Yeah. Uh, and then all of the others were UK productions. Uh, Wait, who's the fourth nominee? I know that you said uh, Evans, Dunaway... Hepburn, and then Haywood. Uh, both Hepburns. Catherine and Audrey. Both of yeah. them are in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Evans, Hepburn, Hepburn, <coughs> Haywood. And then uh, the fifth Oscar nominee, Anne Bancroft, wins the Comedy Globe for uh, The Graduate. <clears throat> so at BAFTA, like I said, she wins Best British Actress, but isn't up for Best Actress. I don't know what their... Uh, I don't actually know what their qualifications were there. I want to I want to check and see what was up with that. Uh, after oh the Wikipedia is not okay. Now here we go. Nineteen sixty seven. Take me to it. Is this the wrong one? No, this is the wrong one. Six. This is the ceremony of sixty seven. Year of sixty seven. Okay, so it was Best British Actress and Best Foreign Actress 
I don't think they had just a best actress category though, or maybe they do when it's just not showing up on Wikipedia. Um, no, they uh, around this time they had like a best British actress, uh, best British performer, best foreign performer. I think. Okay. Yeah, that's what it, at least it looks like that from here. So we have Edith Evans wins for The Whispers uh, and beats out Barbara Jefford for Ulysses and Elizabeth Taylor for The Taming of the Shrew, who had eh, technically British. She was born there, but you know, she's not. When you think of her, you think of her as an American actress more so than a British actress. It feels yeah, like. Yeah, I bit think of a, she had dual citizenship. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it also wins BAFTA for Best British Cinematography Black and White, which is... I, I just love that at this time they're calling everything... Of, it, it has the the best British cinematography, uh, but it beats out, okay, Mademoiselle, The Sailor from Gibraltar, and Ulysses. So maybe we can look to that when we think of what the other uh, black and white cinematography nominees would be here. I don't know anything about... It looks like Mademoiselle, at least was a 1966 movie that was BAFTA eligible in 67 because they like to do that a lot of the time. But uh, I don't know anything about The Sailor from Gibraltar. Oh, wow, there's a ton of people. Uh, I'll, I'll look up the nominees. Um, it's a Jean Moreau, Ian Bannon, Vanessa Redgrave, Orson Welles, and Hugh Griffith are all in this movie. I, I've never heard of that movie, but I mean, it's an interesting... Yeah, it was directed by the guy who made Tom Jones. Ah, I see. I see. Interesting that it, it did win somewhere for its cinematography. I'm, I'm glad that uh, it got that because it, it's very good. It looks very good. Yeah. It's a very well shot movie. Um, at Berlin, like I said, again, Edith Evans wins there. It is up for the Golden Bear, but it doesn't win. It wins uh, the, the Golden Bear ends up going to The Departure, uh, but it wins the Interfilm Award, which is apparently their honorable mention basically uh, it's the honorable mention to the golden bear and then brian forbes wins something called the ocic award like the letters is an acronym for something but i couldn't find any information about what that means it might just mean best director because he i i don't know how berlin works i don't know much about the berlin film festival and its awards beyond golden bear but it wins whatever that is uh, and honorable mention along with best actress. Uh, and then at the national board of review, like I said, Edith Evans wins there. It also makes their top 10 films. Uh, do you have, have you looked at this list at their top 10? Um, what list? Sorry. I missed that. Uh, national board of review. <clears throat> um, no, I don't think I have. Okay. Uh, only two of the eventual best picture nominees ended up on this list. Do you want to guess which two those were? Um, um, the Graduate and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? You're close. It's The Graduate and Dr. Doolittle. Oh, yeah, because Fox had that stupid campaign yeah, where Dr. they wined and dined all those, all those voters... Yeah, they don't allow that anymore. Uh, yeah, that that's what the Golden Globes are for. Um, but their top ten: it's Accident, Doctor Doolittle, In Cold Blood, The Comedians, The Family Way, The Graduate, Taming of the Shrew, and Ulysses, along with The Whispers. And their uh, their film of the year is Far from the Madding Crowd, which is a title 
that I can't not sing in my head to uh, Shallow from A Star Is Born. Uh. I, I like someone pointed that out at some point that they're that they sing far from the Madden crowd to the we're far from the shallows now from Shallow, and anytime I read that title, I can't not hear that. And thankfully, I don't come across that title like in everyday life or whatever. But uh, it came up a bunch when I was doing research on this. And now that's out there for anyone listening to this. Uh, for all of you far from the Madden crowd fans out there, I guess. I don't know much of anything about it. Uh, but Yeah, me neither. Uh, what, yeah, like I said, she wins New York Film Critics. And then she's nominated at National Society of Film Critics. And she loses that. Uh, it's like the one nomination she got that she lost that wasn't the Oscar. And she loses to B.B. Anderson for Persona, which, like, I, I'll, I'll give you that. That's a good win. That's a good... Yeah, not surprising, considering um, what they typically do for the National Society. Yeah. Uh, this is also, like, I didn't mention it when I said National Board of Review, but this is, like, Edith Evans' fourth National Board of Review win in, like, eight years. Because she won for... Let me pull them up. I had it just a second ago. She won at NBR for uh, The Nun Story and then The Chalk Garden and then The Whisperers. Never mind, it's only three. But that's still... She won NBR three times over the course of like eight years. That's... They, they yeah. liked her, I guess. I mean... they Yeah, they, they do like the sort of respected stage actors, especially in that time. Uh, I just thought that was interesting that she won three of those. And that's really the extent of any awards that this movie got. Like, this is the full IMDb awards tab transposed into my yeah. I, I yeah. didn't, I didn't skip over any, like, regional anything. This is, this is it. And, like, for as much as I can say this is it, because it's a, it's a performance that won, again, Golden Globe, BAFTA, Berlin Best Actress, National Porter Review, and New York Film Critics, and was nominated for National Society. Like... That is not a uh, an awards tally to turn up your nose at. That is very impressive. For a movie this small, too. Yeah, definitely. So do we want to talk about now Best Actress at the Oscars and how sure. it would have turned out? Uh, yes. So I still haven't seen Wait Until Dark because I'm saving that for whenever I do the episode on that because I, that's another movie I get to talk about. But I have now, since my uh, Long Day's Journey into Night episode where I confessed I hadn't seen as many of Catherine Hepburn's movies, or at least of her nominated movies that I would like to, I have since now seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, it's an interesting win. I, I, I mean... Yeah, it makes sense in, cult, in like historical context because yeah. they wanted to give her a sympathy vote after Spencer Tracy died and she was grieving. Yeah. And... And also at this point, like, we t- we touched on it in that episode, but, like, we look back on her now as four-time Oscar winner Catherine Hepburn. But at this time, she was still... She had only won one, one time in, like, 1933. So she was... She yeah. had sort of, like... I mean, she never went away from the Oscars, but she was getting the sort of long day's journey into night comeback, sort of 60s, older, yeah. like can do no wrong Catherine Hepburn. So it makes sense that something like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is sort of a 
welcoming her back into the fold. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not necessarily a on a performance level something that you would look at and immediately think, oh, this is a movie she won for. Yeah, no. Um, it's I think she is fine. Yeah, she's not bad, but she's definitely my least favorite of the nominees. I think all of them have a bit more going for them. Yeah. Um, I do like this lineup overall. Yeah, it's it's a good lineup. I mean, at least yeah. four I've seen. And from what I've yeah. heard about Wait Until Dark, I don't think that's going to, by any means, be the like the lesser nominee. I've heard very good things about it. I'm very excited to talk about that whenever I, uh, whenever someone picks it. But yeah, yeah, I think like. Uh, there's not really all that much to say about Catherine Hepburn here. Like, he's maybe fourth or fifth down the line of the performances in that movie that stood out to me, I think. I mean, obviously, Sidney yeah. Poitier is, like, leaps and bounds above everyone else in that movie. He's really tuned into that movie. But, like, Cecil Kellaway, I think, is fun as the Monsignor. I actually was surprised by how taken I was with Spencer Tracy in it. I think it's... It's not a bad performance. Like, I've been led to... The way people sort of talk about it is like, oh, it's an okay performance, but... I I mean, Spencer Tracy doesn't have the most uh, astute fandom these days. People aren't really that in tune with his sort of vibe. But I think he's he's an okay actor. I think he's he's turned in some pretty good work, and I think he's pretty good, and guess who's coming to dinner, all things considered. I mean, considering, like, he died 17 days later, but... Oh yeah, yeah. That's um, but yeah, I think his um final scene, that big speech. I think he delivers it very well. Yeah, yeah. I think he. Uh, I think, I wasn't expecting to come away from that movie saying that uh, he gave the more, I guess, compelling performance than Catherine Hepburn, but I I think he does. I think that's a. And there's more to his performance. It's definitely a more dynamic role than hers is. I think that probably helps a lot with it, that he has more character growth over a more extended period of time in the movie. Do, we, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Audrey Hepburn, uh, speaking of Hepburn? Um, just because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, um, I won't spoil it too much for you, but it is a very tight thriller with beautiful cinematography from, like, gorgeous cinematography from Charles Lang and a great score from Henry Mancini and two frequent Audrey Hepburn collaborators. Yeah. Um, and she's very good at um, both playing, like, the blindness of this character and also, like, her desperation as... She's basically running out of options to... Um, keep away from the main villain. Yeah. And the final scene is really like nerve racketing. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's gonna be fun whenever I talk about it, just based on its reputation alone. Um and then we have uh Anne Bancroft and Faye Dunaway both in Best, Best Picture, Picture nominees. Uh giving very good performances and uh, like among the most iconic of both of their respective careers uh, to very iconic characters, very 
dynamic. I mean, two very iconic movies, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. There's, I mean, there's a whole book about this entire Oscar race, this whole best picture race and these movies in particular uh, for a reason, because these movies, the five up top are very reflective of Hollywood at this era in general. And like, I'm not going to bring anything new to the discussion about either The Graduate or Bonnie and Clyde. But I think they're both very, they're very good performances that for whatever reason, I always like twin those movies. Like out of all of the movies of this year, I always twin Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate together for like, they're not really similar in any ways, but I I just have that sort of pairing in my mind. And I don't know why. Yeah. um, I guess they are. um, I guess it makes sense since they're both, commentaries on like the upper guard and how they are perceiving this new radical movement yeah um and like i mean i mean all of these performances like we've been saying very good top to bottom it's a very strong lineup uh yeah but like again so much has been said about them specifically about these movies that, like, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what new insights I can bring into them. I think Anne Bancroft oh. is very good as Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, Anne Bancroft, she makes you understand, like, her character is not supposed to be sympathetic. And yet, she makes you understand, like, okay, I get why she's doing this. Yeah. It makes sense on a certain level. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, like, the way she's able to be both predatory and sad at the same time and use those famous eyes of hers, it's a very magnetic performance. Yeah, very much so. And, like, I love Anne Bancroft as a performer in general. Yeah, so like, definitely. It, it's very it's very good work on her, on her end. And then, um... With Faye Dunaway. Yeah. She really plays as a wild child um, characterization of Bonnie Parker and overpowers Warren Beatty's Buck Barrow. No, um, Clyde Barrow. Yeah. At several points. Yeah. It's um, been a while since I've seen Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, yeah. and I've only seen it the one time. But I remember, like, she really stood out to me among that cast. Uh I, I do need to revisit it because I, I remember liking it a, a lot. Uh, but it's yeah. It's very good. Yeah. I think I think she's... And she's very good in it. Even, like, the whole cast is strong. But yeah. I think she really makes her mark on that. I think the dynamic with Warren Beatty is interesting because Beatty seemingly chooses to portray Clyde as almost like a man-child. Yeah with pouty expressions. And I'm not sure how much it works, but it is interesting. Yeah. But I do focus more on Faye Dunaway just because she's so expressive and almost of a different era. What I would compare this to is like Natalie Wood and Splendor in the Grass, which kind of makes sense because Natalie Wood was considered for Bonnie Parker. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. I, again, very strong best actress lineup. I don't yeah. know. I don't know who I would vote for. 
it's tough. Like I, I can make a strong case for Edith Evans and Anne Bancroft and Faye Dunaway all in my mind. Like, I don't think I necessarily know who would be my number one pick among this group. I don't think there's one that like, I think they all work so well in very different ways that it's hard to judge them against each other. I, I would have a very hard time picking my number one of this group. Uh, who would you vote for if, if you if you had a ballot right now? I would probably go with Edith Evans. Yeah. And then Anne Bancroft, I'd rank second. Ray Dunaway, I'd rank third. Um, Audrey Hepburn, I'd rank fourth. And Catherine Hepburn, I'd rank fifth. Yeah. I, I mean, that checks out. I, I think I'd probably go with Edith Evans and then Anne Bancroft and then Faye Dunaway and then Catherine Hepburn as well. Again, not having seen Wait Until Dark yet. Um, but yeah, it's tough. Ask me another day, I might pick Anne Bancroft. Ask me another day, I might pick Faye Dunaway. It's it's a very solid top three. Uh, and uh, Mrs. Robinson is very different from... Uh, Bonnie Parker is very different from Mrs. Ross. So it's very hard to judge because they're doing so many different things with those performances. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do we want to talk about some of these other categories this year that this that the Whisperers could have contended in? Like, adapted screenplay? I haven't seen... Adapted any... screenplay would have made sense. Yeah. Um, I ha- I'm, but and it's... so does the other five nominees. Yeah, it, it's a, like sometimes you look back at these screenplay categories especially and it's like, these movies basically don't exist. What what are we talking about? But this year, like, In the Heat of the Night makes sense as a as the, as the winner, but also the as winner. a nominee. Cool Hand Luke makes sense as a nominee. The Graduate makes a lot of sense as a nominee. That's a, a very screenplay-ish movie. In Cold Blood makes sense as a nominee. And Ulysses... I haven't seen it, so I, I, I'm, but it's, you know, it's basically it's a literary it's, adaptation. Yeah, of like one of the great novels. You're not going to not nominate Ulysses. Uh, so it is entirely understandable why a movie like The Whispers that's so small in scale and in plot and isn't really a, like, the dialogue isn't really what you think of when you think of this movie. It makes sense why this doesn't really show up there at all. Yeah. Cinematography. Uh, again, most of these make sense. Bonnie and Clyde makes sense winning here. The Graduate in Cold Blood. They did end up going with one black and white movie at least. Uh, um, Doctor Doolittle. Gotten rid of the cat. We we could have gotten rid of the musicals, but yeah. at the same time, Doctor Doolittle and Camelot were heavily like promoted and bankrolled campaigns. Yeah. Warner Bros. probably also did whining and dining. But also, if you take those out, I don't think The Whisperers is your next in line. Yeah, because in The Heat of the Night and... And The Graduate. No, no, The Graduate Wait, is already a nominee. Was it? No, what am I thinking? Yeah, yeah no. Yeah, it is. It, it is. Yeah, sorry. I And I just said that out loud, and I still... <laughs> sorry. It's It's been a long day. But yeah, In the Heat of the Night, not showing up in cinematography... Uh, it's surprising, especially considering how innovative the cinematography was. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it just becomes a case of there's a lot of innovation in a lot of these movies, and like that you miss out on Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate in editing. I think that's what I was thinking of. That neither yeah. of those get an editing nomination, 
feels kind of like, okay, we're going to go for Bonnie and Clyde and the Graduate and cinematography, and we're going to go for In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and editing. And I guess we're going to nominate Dr. Doolittle in both of them. Why not? Why not? Uh, but, yeah, I imagine for cinematography, um, In the Heat of the Night and either... Um... I mean, throw in, like, Cool Hand Luke. Throw yeah, in... Wait Until Dark. Far from the matting crowd. The Dirty Dozen. Like, all these... Ulysses, like you said, another black and white. Like, there's bigger movies with more of a presence this year that yeah. you could see showing up there long before they go for something like The Whispers. Which, again, if they if they had kept on to black and white cinematography for one more year, maybe we wouldn't be sitting here talking about The Whispers. Yeah, it's an interesting year. It's a year that I will be talking about a couple more times. Like I said, we have Wait Until Dark, and then also Barefoot in the Park is another movie this year, another nomination that I will be talking about. And I think that's it. I think uh, Dirty Dozen got a few more nominations. Yeah. And Thoroughly Modern Millie got a couple. Uh, Wait. Yeah, no, that that got seven nominations. Yeah, I definitely can't talk about that movie. Um, but yeah, everything else is like either Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or Bonnie and Clyde or The Graduate or Cool Hand Luke. Like that's... Or In the Heat of the Night gets... I always forget that that movie only got the one acting nomination. It feels kind of surprising that all, aside from Dr. Doolittle, that the other three Best Picture nominees get like a total, what... 11 acting nominations among them, and then In the Heat of the Night only gets the one. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole, like, the whole Sidney Poitier of it all is a whole other conversation to be had, because he has, you know, the three movies this year that he could have, that probably all canceled each other out as far as getting a nomination for him somewhere. Yeah. Do you have really anything else? I mean, art direction? What do we have here? Guess who's coming to um, dinner is a weird choice there, but, like, Camelot makes sense. Dr. Doolittle, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Taming of the Shrew. Like, it's big production musicals and historical stuff. Yeah. So those make sense. Yeah. I don't quite get the Guess Who's Coming to Dinner nomination because it's just the house. I, I mean, it's, an nice, house looking, is... it's a house... nice looking house. But, like, yeah. Bonnie and Clyde, again, is right there. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much that they're doing with the period design there. Um, yeah. Oh, the score? Oh, yeah, this is um, a, pretty, a pretty good year for score. Uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie wins, and then Cool Hand Luke, Dr. Doolittle, eh, Far From the Madden Crowd, and In Cold Blood. I mean, those are... And, and you get names like Elmer Bernstein and Lalo Schifrin and Quincy Jones. And, like, I, I mean... I mean it's a it's a good score for the whispers the john barry score like he's he's not yeah. not yeah. a name at this point of like course. i said he won two oscars the year before and won another the next year but like i don't know i understand why this movie doesn't get the score nomination as well this is sometimes you'll get a movie that i talk about that i'm surprised it only got the one nomination this is a movie that makes sense to only get the one nomination even if i personally would have slaughtered it in elsewhere. I think it it makes complete sense that a movie this small uh, would only get the one. Yeah. 
anything else about these Oscars or do we want to move on and to our uh, final segment? I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. So in your personal, I mean, obviously this is like your whole thing. This is your podcast concept, but in your ideal world of the Oscars of your personal awards, what nominations would you have given to the whisperers? Um, Edith Evans would be a winner for me. Yeah. Keep in mind that I've barely seen, I haven't seen a lot of movies from 1967, but Edith Evans so far is my winner. And then maybe a cinematography nomination, maybe a score nomination, maybe adapted screenplay. But it depends on um, what else. Yeah. I see. And I decide on. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, again, I probably Edith Evans as well as a winner for me. I don't think this is necessarily a Best Picture nominee, just because this is such a strong year for movies. Uh, and again, I, I don't know about director either, but cinematography, score, I think probably sound, uh, and you know maybe art direction. Maybe I'll throw at that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the, the design elements in this, it's not a movie that naturally draws attention to them uh, right away, but... I think they 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 uh, they stick with you more than you expect them to, based on just the kind of movie it is. I, I think it, I think they really work to its advantage. Definitely. Yeah, I don't have that much more to say, honestly. Yeah, me neither. This is going to be on the shorter side, as far as episodes. But like, we've said all there is to say, basically. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, so thank you for coming on this podcast. Thank you. This, this was a great conversation about a very interesting movie that I, I'm glad uh, you picked it. I'm glad we got to sit down and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So uh, uh, pl- what do you have to plug? Do you have uh, any, any? Um, yeah. Um, I'm the host of the Alternate Oscars podcast. You can find that on Twitter at Alternate Oscars. Um, it also has a Patreon page. Which, um, um, yeah, it also has a Patreon page. Um you can find me on Twitter at Gabe the Joker. You can find me on Instagram, which is my name, Gabe Warren. Um, on on Letterboxd is Mr. Hulo. Um, cool. So yeah, for yeah. the alternate Oscars podcast, um, we basically rewrite the Oscars history, um, starting twenty eight and I, starting in nineteen twenty eight onwards. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Go go check that out. Uh, and you can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at the Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening.